Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I am talking with Jonathan Kramnik about close reading. Jonathan, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, of course. I'm Jonathan Kramnik. I'm a professor in the English department at Yale University, and I've just published a book on literary criticism and the epistemology of close reading. And so we're super excited to ask you, what the heck is close reading? I will say just a little bit to to begin with what close reading is not, which may sound a bit surprising or counterintuitive, which is that I don't think close reading is actually uh, reading at all. Close reading is a practice of writing. We often talk about close reading as a sort of especially intense or slow or concentrated or attentive practice of reading in the ordinary sense. But in actual fact, I think what we mean by close reading in the context of literary studies is a practice of writing done in the service of interpretation and explanation and finding a grip on works of literature and the worlds in which works of literature are read, created, circulate, have meaning, and so on. And so what does that writing consist of? How is it different from, say, creative writing? Well, actually, I think there is a really important creative dimension to close reading. So actually, I think that close reading is, in some very important respects, creative writing. That is, it's about making something from the world, making something from verbal artifacts. But let me say first, you know, what that writing consists of. Bringing the words, a verbal work of art, into your own, embedding them in your own sentences, placing them next to your sentences, in other cases, and incorporating some of their stylistic elements. It consists of a process of making something and turning something in the service of trying to understand it and the world in which it resides. And writing, where you take pieces of the verbal artifact and incorporate them into your own sentences, into your own work of verbal art, as it were. And that's done you know, initially, or the most foundational level, perhaps, by quotation. And I spent a lot of time in my new book talking about practices of quotation and of embedding words and accommodating the 
formal order of your own sentence to elements of syntax and diction and tone that precede you and limit what you can do with it and making something new. And then I move on from those from embedded quotation, what I call in-sentence quotation, to uh, practices of stylistic mimicry that maybe are more like adjacent forms of quotation, indirect quotation, perhaps. Those practices of writing with the text that you are coming up with an account of and trying to say something about the world through are very distinctive skilled practices of what we call close reading that are essential to the kind of epistemic good standing of the discipline. It's something we learn how to do, we learn how to do well, and when we evaluate works of criticism, we look at closely to see how well they've been performed. I want to ask you a devilish question. Wow, a lot of what you said close reading is sounds like plagiarism. I mean, the reason I ask that is because we had a 19th century Americanist on the podcast a while back Mm -hmm. talking about the historical practices of plagiarism. Yeah. And it sounded kind of a lot like that, right? The sort of creative element. Let me respond to that perhaps a little bit differently, which is to say, actually, on my view, and this stems directly from my understanding of the way that we write and create something uh, from the world, I don't have a, a soft take on plagiarism. Actually, the kind of plagiarism absolutist, which is I think that every sentence has the kind of the mark of the DNA of the writer. When people say that they accidentally sloppily copied someone else's sentence without really knowing it, I, I think I either don't believe it or I think it doesn't matter. Also, don't think that there's any distinction between style and argument when it comes to you know cases of plagiarism. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, they plagiarized work that is you know not essential to the argument is just kind of you know summarizing critical literature etc cetera, etc cetera. i think from the standpoint of literary studies at least every sentence of your article chapter whatever is doing argument and there's no just filler so like you know if you copy someone else's you know summary of something you are in fact stealing their creative work and passing it off as your own it's because i am committed to the idea that the shape of a sentence and its individual parts and the way that it actually you know makes something from the encountered verbal world is so central to what we do and so much an element of the way that we make arguments interpret texts make a claim to have something to say about the world and then also uh, so central to how we evaluate the work of other scholars that i think there is you know there's really no grounds to say that, oh, you know, this was an accident or, oh, it doesn't matter um, because it's not about the argument. Um, so then I think maybe sticking to that idea that like all of the sentences matter mm-hmm. and that the shape of each sentence is is part of what we do in this practice of close reading. Let me ask you our second question. How do I use close reading? I think there's a kind of first order way in which we use close reading towards the ends of interpretation. Having something to say about a verbal artifact, novel, what have you, and the world in which it resides, the kind of everyday interpretive work of the discipline. Close reading is in that sense, as I say in the book, a kind of baseline practice from which we scale up to make all kinds of arguments, arguments that can be historical in their nature, can be political in their nature, can be you know conceptual and philosophical in their nature, theoretical, what have you. Um, so how do we use it? You know, We use it to do our interpretive work and it in that sense you know gives us the firm epistemic footing for claims that we might make that have a kind of a wider range of you know of uh, of topical overtone to them or significance to them 
along with that, close reading is a creative encounter with the world. It, it actually, like, you know, both changes us and changes the world that we live in, you know, in perhaps very small ways, but in ways that are concrete and deeply significant. So we use it to organize our lives, maybe, to certainly shape worlds, worlds with our students, worlds with our fellow scholars. Close reading is, you know, in that sense, from the vantage of literary studies, you know, the beginning of everything. Okay, I, I'm tempted to just ask you our third question because you're like, yeah. if close reading is the thing that makes the world, I'm really excited to. Get, are Are you feeling ready for it? <laughs> uh, well, sure. Although I may, I hope I don't give you a, a slightly deflationary, <laughs> deflating answer. All right. So, how will close reading save the world? Okay, well, so for my first answer is it's not going to. Uh, close reading is not going to stop climate change. It's not going to end global inequality. It's like all these like urgent questions that you know face global citizens in the 21st century, like require much more, ex, you know, inconceivably vastly more significant things than uh, than the practices of literary scholars to fix. Like. And I think that's really important to understand that, right? So that we don't overestimate the, the significance of what we do. However, I, don't, I do think that what we do is really absolutely significant and that to the degree to which the profession is you know, imperiled um, and that uh, to the degree to which you know, we are in the midst of, as I say in the book, a kind of plausible extinction event in the history of knowledge, the loss of close reading as, I've, as we've been talking about it is, you know, is something to deeply lament. How does close reading save the world? What it does is it, it actually does engage in world creation. It is a creative act that, that actually like alters the world that it encounters, the world that it encounters being the world of verbal art, but also mediated through verbal art, all the rest of the world that works of literature interact with and participate in, explain, and so on. Um, once we understand, you know, in that respect, you know, the, the actual act of interpretation and of slightly altering and changing the encountered world that happens every time one writes, there are elements of world creation, turning the encountered world in a slightly different way that are deeply significant. Mm -hmm. Once we get a proper handle on that, we could actually understand better the way in which literary criticism actually does engage in worldly concerns. I know this is maybe a tall order, but I wonder yeah. if you could maybe give us an example. Um, I think I might punt on that question, except for to say, like, you know, take a look at an article in a bread and butter journal in the literary humanities, take a book off yourself. And then just pause to look at what's happening in the moments where the reading is really taking off. That is to say, the practice of writing is really taking off and where there seems to be something emerging from the sentences that's different from, you know, what has preceded it, a kind of different form of the weave. And imagine that as, you know, how that circulates and ramifies, you know, the world in some delimited and specific sense um, has changed. I think that we all understand that intuitively when we're talking about teaching, mm. when we think about the best moments in a class, you know, when we think about how something has emerged in class discussion and, you know, ephemeral as it might seem, everything else kind of shut down for a minute and it seems like there was something new had emerged. I think that happens in writing as well. Yeah, no, there is a magic in the classroom. And I think you can see some of that same magic on the page. And that's certainly where I want us to go when we think about the importance of the discipline and uh, what will be lost with its passing. If I don't have a specific example from you, it's because in some ways I'm, I just think it happens all the time. I am really committed to the idea that this is, you know, a discipline-wide practice that happens in the everyday quotidian practice of writing that, you know, forms a scholarly backbone for the discipline. 
let me ask you about the discipline. Yeah. Why close reading? Why are we grasping that as the like as the bedrock? Yeah. Well, I mean, my claim there is largely descriptive, which is I think that that you know I think that it is if you actually dig down to the kind of variety of practices that constitute what the state of literary studies to what is the kind of common set of of skills and norms, you can get to a kind of foundation of a writing practice that we call close reading that you know, ties together the multitude and heterogeneity of contemporary literary criticism and helps and serves to give it a kind of firm epistemic footing. So I'm not making a claim, as some people do, that we should like return to close reading. I'm not a disciplinary conservative by any stretch of the imagination. I do not argue for returning to some practice from the past that is uh, that violates every tenet of my core, you know, professional disciplinary being. Rather, the claim is actually like, what are we doing now? What ties us together? What enables us to actually like have disagreement and to imagine different kinds of professional and disciplinary activity against a kind of background sense of a common practice or a common set of ideals? And I think like, you know, there are there are probably several things, but I think that the one that I focused on that seemed to get the most traction, at least for me, mm-hmm. is close reading. And again, something that is practice of writing and creating from the world of verbal art. Can you sketch as a future in which literary studies flourishes? I think that you know literary studies flourishes when we rebuild universities and recommit ourselves to the humanities. I think alongside of that, you know, when we also take advantage of all the new thinking about the relationship between literary studies and its publics, explore routes of connection that are you know not simply through the tenure track stream, but rather the broader network of affiliation between the academy and the rest of the world. But you can't have that, you know, the various kinds of exciting public humanities without having a university system that is uh, robust enough to sustain it. So I don't think, as I say at the end of the book, that the public humanities is going to save the discipline. It can't on its own. It actually needs the discipline to survive. But I think it's part of the, you know, the interesting new shapes that work in the discipline is taking and the new routes for conversation between the discipline and the rest of the world that we're seeing all the time. Cool. Thank you, Jonathan, for coming and talking with us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure for me as well. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.